Welcome to Veteran State of Mind. I'm your host, Geraint Jones. Guys, we have a, a civilian guest on the podcast today. But you know what? This man has seen a more war than most of us put together. Uh, his name is James Martin Brabazon. He is a documentary filmmaker. He's from the UK. Uh, he's a journalist and author. Uh, he's best known for his work in conflict situations. Um, first gained attention as the only journalist to, f- uh, to film the Lurd Rebel Group fighting to overthrow pra- President Charles Taylor during the Second Liberian Civil War. Um, for those of you who aren't really familiar with that conflict, fair to say that it was absolutely gopping. Um, one of those wars where there was all kinds of stuff going on from uh, kind of ethnic cleansing to cannibalism and uh, just not a very pleasant place to be. But James found himself uh, out there. We're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about his fiction work. Uh, he has a, a series of books out now. The latest one's called Archangel. That's out now. You can check it out. I'll put the links to everything up in the show notes. Just before we get to today's podcast, I want to say a big thank you to Combat Fuel for keeping us running down the old gym. I'm enjoying the vegan protein. The vegan? The vegan protein? I'm enjoying the vegan protein, so thanks for that. And I'm enjoying the pump supplement. They have two different pre-workouts. Um, and I know like a lot of people out there, you know, they find the pre-workouts with caffeine to be a bit too much, make you a bit scatty. Not so the pump-up pre-workout. Uh, it just gives you a really good pump for focus and that. But it will not send you um, it will not send you loopy. So definitely recommend that one, guys. Uh, and for those of you listening who are currently serving in the in the forces, you probably know all about um, the informed sports and how you have to have supplements that are done through informed sports so that you don't get kicked out of the army or the military. And so I want to assure you that Combat Fuel is um, they work with informed sports pass all their little tests, whatever those may be. I, I can't tell you what the tests are. I have no idea. I just know that they pass them. Um, they're also down They're down in um, down in Andover. Uh, they got a gym down there. I know the friend of the podcast, Ali Mann of Brothers in Arms fame, he goes down there, he thinks it's a mega gym. Uh, in fact, he said to me the other day that doing bicep curls underneath the infantry flag made him very, very hard indeed. I don't think he was talking about the pump in his arms. So check them out, guys. Head over to Combat Fuel. Like I said, it's all past the informed sports stuff. Um, tag them up in the show notes below. If you're looking for the protein, I recommend the vegan the, the vegan one, even if you're not vegan, just because uh, it tastes bloody gorgeous and it does the biz. All right, let's get into today's episode, guys. Please give a very warm welcome to Mr. James Brabazzo. James, welcome to the podcast, mate. Thanks for being here. A pleasure, guest. Thanks very much for having me on. Uh, you were just telling me off camera you're in uh, you're in France at the moment and uh, rather on the hot side of things. It's uh, unsurprisingly um, beautiful, but surprisingly extremely hot. So I think we're we're due to hit uh, forty degrees Celsius quite shortly, which is a bit of a shock to my kids who like the idea of it being very hot, but in practice quite like. <laughs> lying down indoors covered in wet flannels bless mm-hmm. them anyway it's uh it's nice of them to um you know we can all go on holiday together so they can you know remember what their dad looks like which is always a good <laughs> always a bonus yeah. it's careful what you wish for with the weather though isn't it because it's like there is such a there's such a difference between like even just 30 and 35 it exponentially starts to get, you know, like it just it's just harder to do everything at that point. Sometimes you must like think because I know you've been around the world a lot. Sometimes you think like, how the hell did I work in like forty plus? Do you know what? It's like 
I catch myself thinking about this sometimes. Like, you know, I'm fortunate and in a great position to be able to go on holiday and take the kids away. And you think, oh, it's getting a bit hot, isn't it? Like, whew. dealing with the logistics of parking the car and finding somewhere to eat. And you think, hang on a minute. Like, I lived in the bush for months on end, <laughs> eating very little and with the added excitement of, you know, various armies or guerrilla um, bands trying to track you down. And we managed that okay. So I think, you know, it turns out we'll probably be able to order a glass of wine without further incident. Reality check. It is though, but it's it's just crazy how like quickly you adapt one way or the other. Like if you're in the bush or if you're in the desert, you adapt really quickly and you get you just get on with it because you have to. But then equally... It's not like, even though you've been in those situations, when you get home, you very quickly, like, your body resets to being the pampered, you know, first world kind of person, doesn't it? It certainly does. It's funny, you know, because you can, I mean, one of the interesting things about, like, working in difficult places is that you see quite often a civilian population who have gone from, you know, like, not necessarily living in the lap of luxury but like a very high standard of living very well educated people with good professional jobs almost overnight you know cooking meals on a campfire made out of the splintered remains of their furniture in the remnants of their house uh, or on the move as refugees mm. and you know that extraordinary ability you saw it in syria a lot you know, like really high functioning professionals who were suddenly in a subsistence economy. It's uh, it's shocking on the one hand. And also, I mean, obviously, it's 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 disgusting and not something that you you want to see. But it's quite heartening as well to see how adaptive humans can be and how people can find the best in the worst of situations and i think that's one of the things that like you know however like i mean working as a journalist you know i've decided to put myself somewhere i've decided to be somewhere you know it's like i've i'm bringing those hardships upon myself so boo boo hoo for james people that live there have it thrust upon them and yet still you know can find things to laugh about and smile about and have something left to share so you know there's like there are lessons in there i just wish we didn't have to learn them in that kind of way yeah it's it's um it, it's it's one of those it's almost like the more choices and more options you have sometimes i'm not saying that it's a bad thing but i think we do should recognize at the same time that a lot of options it can uh, you know paralyze us and because we make we're so scared of making the wrong choices that we often just don't make any choice at all. Whereas it's like when your only when your only option, you know, for the veterans listening is whatever ration pack you're given to eat in the patrol base that night. That's what you're fucking eating. You're not worried. You know, you're not worried about anything else. And you haven't got the TV to watch. So you're not worried about right. What am I going to pick on Netflix? It's you got to have a chat, and that's it. And when you when we take away all these different inputs, it can be a lot easier to just be yourself. I tell you what, you know, you soon find out whether you really like eating something or not when it's the only thing there is to eat. <laughs> and I can tell you that there are things which, even though they were the only thing to eat, I still could not bring myself to eat. So I, <laughs> I have found out the limits of my culinary tolerance and rotted fufu is one of them <laughs> like, oh, what's uh, what's fufu it's like a kind of um it's made out of cassava it's a cassava pulp so it's sort of root vegetable in west africa and you make a kind of um almost like a dough out of it right and 
it gets quite rank and starts to ferment if you leave it for a while. And, um, you know, nice fresh foo-foo, great. Several days old, rotting in the heat foo-foo. Oh, my goodness. There's, yeah, I've uh, got to say, you're not really selling it to me. No, no, no. <laughs> no, I'll cancel that delivery then. Yeah. yeah. It, eating in the heat full stop, though, is just something that you've got to really want to eat, haven't you? When, it, when, it's, when, you, when you're in the heat, it's, it's, it's hard to make you get anything down your neck in the first place. True, though. I'll tell you what, though. I was in Liberia in 2003. And we were just on the outskirts of Monrovia and uh, the rebels that I was with um, were in the process of being overrun by uh, a government army counter ambush. And at that exact moment, one of the rebels had managed to almost certainly steal a chicken, had cooked it and produced the first cooked chicken I'd seen for, mm. I mean, like weeks and produced it on a plate. And it was another rebel and myself just looked at him like, you know what? There is no way that we're not eating this. <laughs> so we just sat down on this wall and started eating it. It was a full contact firefight going on like 500 yards away, 400 yards away, 300 yards away. We're chowing down on this. Everyone was going mad. My colleague, Tim Hetherington, was running around trying to film it. And then one of the other rebels stops and looked at me and just said, aren't you supposed to be filming this? <laughs> I said, yeah, but it's, it's been like literally weeks since we've had anything to eat except for cassava. <laughs> so old just, sat, just sat there, chowed that down, and then off, off we went. Let's go back to the beginning then and start to trace uh, how you ended up in uh, Liberia because that's not a stop on um, you know most people's kind of dest- uh, on the list of destinations. So you went, you went to um, university, uh, you went to Cambridge to study history, um, let's, let's start with like what what was the decision behind that? Is that something you were always interested in reading in, or, or what? Where'd that come from? Well, okay, so we're going way back. Okay, right. So I mm. okay, so back into it. Right, right back into it. Okay, so I went to um, I went to university. I went to Cambridge. I studied history, and I studied history because it was basically the only thing I was good enough at to do for a degree. Right. And I was really, was really interested in it. And I've always been interested in history. And I've, I come from a family that's, you know, been, had a, a long sort of military tradition behind it uh, in some, in some aspects. Um, and so I sort of grew up with stories from my grandfathers and my father talking about um, the different places that they'd been, the different stuff that they'd done and seen. And that sort of fed into this interest for history. And my dad was a big Mm. history nut. So that made sense to me. Um, And then when I got to the end of my degree, I really wanted to keep studying, you know, and keep on in in studying in academia. And I started looking at um, an area of history that really interests me, which is the Rhodesian Bush War, right. um, what's now what's now Zimbabwe, so the sort of period between 1965 and 1980, and um, and particularly the way in which the the British press had been manipulated by the British government at various points to kind of wittingly or unwittingly generate a narrative that served their political purpose for the British stance during the war in in Rhodesia. And I got to a certain point with this and thought, oh, screw it. I just want to go to Zimbabwe. (laughs) I just actually want to go and I'm meeting and talking to all these really interesting people. And it's like, actually, I'd rather just go there. 
And I decided, so I decided I'm going to leave university. I didn't um, do a higher degree. And it took me, I left university in 94, and I didn't get to Zimbabwe until the year 2000. Um, but I'm really glad that I decided to pursue journalism rather than being an academic. Um, and part of the reason that I did that was because my sort of entry point into being a journalist um, was photography. Right. So there was a, a kind of a mixture of a, an obsession, really. I was not, it was more than an interest. It was, it was definitely an obsession with, with photography, with travel, and with history. And um, putting those together, you know, the only thing I could really think that I could do was to get into photojournalism. And, mm. you know, so I kind of looked at all the greats like Don McCullen and Kappa and, you know, I was like, right, fantastic. This is going to be it. This is going to be what I'm going to do. Um, the problem being that I just wasn't a very good photographer. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, great intentions, but actually there was just a deficit of talent. And I persevered at photography for a long time, uh, to be honest. I, you know, from, I started when I was still at university. I started working as an assistant to a photographer in London. I did a lot of editorial portraiture and then I started shooting reportage and I kept it going pretty much until the year 2000, 2001. Um, and the last sort of proper job I did as a photographer was, um, was uh, Afghanistan in 2001, mm. um, right at the beginning. And I got to the end of that. I just thought, you know, everything was switching from analog to digital. So people were stopping using film and switching over to digital cameras. It was a massive investment, you know, thousands and thousands of pounds of new equipment if you wanted to keep working in that world. And I just, you know, every now and again, you have to have a reality check and just say to yourself, honestly, can I really do this? Am I really good enough to do this? And sometimes just wanting something isn't enough. Um, and I really fortunately managed to transition very quickly from photography into filmmaking. And I, and I managed to do that entirely by accident. Right. And, um, almost the last photographic job that I did well almost very nearly the last um was in Sierra Leone and it was right at the end of the war and you know there were it had been when the uh, Royal Irish Rangers had been kidnapped by the West Side Boys there'd been the um, Operation Barras to get them free the Paris had gone in heavily to um pacify the remnants of the West Side Boys, and we were really nearing the end of that conflict. There's still a few elements of the Revolutionary United Front active in eastern Sierra Leone. And I went in with a, a magazine based in London to do a kind of puff piece on the British Army. You know, it's a real like, you know, our, our boys overseas, what a good job they've done. Mm -hmm. Thumbs up, you know, supported by the MOD. It was very simple, you know. What, what's it like being, you know, a, uh, a squaddy in, um, Sierra Leone and I went over with a writer and I took the photographs and when I was there um, 
the writer arranged um, accommodation for us, and it was in with a it's a private house with a South African guy. And I rocked up, and we did the job. It's very straightforward. The writer left. I wanted to stay on for a while, and as soon as the writer had left, it was just me and this South African guy called Quibus. Quibus sat down with me and said, "Right, so um, who the fuck are you?" I said, well, I'm James. You know, I've been living here for two weeks taking photographs. Uh, And he said, no, no, who are you? I said, right, you had no idea I was coming, did you? You had no idea I was coming to stay with you. He's like, no, I had no idea. And I'm right, okay, well, I'm, you know, this is who I am. This is about me. And I was like, the time I've been there, I was like, there were things in this house. There was like a room I went into by accident once looking for like the pantry. And it was just filled with military kit stuff so it's like so um who are you exactly <laughs> and it said oh well i, I was um i was a, a fire force commander in um executive outcomes so i'm like oh so you are you're a mercenary you were a mercenary he said yeah that's right and uh, he was part of the mercenary deployment to sierra leone that got him you know four years or so pre the british um arriving and he decided that he liked me. One of his other mercenary mates, an Israeli, came around um, to, to do some business and say hello. Saw me standing there with a the camera around my neck. And um, he just looked at me absolutely deadpan. He said, if you take my photograph, I will kill you. I said, okay, I've got an absolutely outstanding idea. How's about I don't take your photograph? <laughs> He's like, fine. Shook my hand. And then, for some reason, I don't really understand, because, um, you know, I'm just a wanker from South London. <laughs> they, all, they all kind of took to me and started, you know, introducing me to more and more of their mates, like legendary helicopter gunship pilots, uh, you know, full nine yards. And I sort of spent time in this circle of people. It was interesting. Um couple of them agreed to do interviews with me took some photographs um and then i left and then a few months later um Quibus rang me up again and said listen um don't know if you're interested in this but there's a war going on in liberia the country next door um no one knows anything about it the americans are involved and the uh, U.S. intelligence agency that uh, me and some of the boys have done contract work with in the past are very interested in helping you to get in if you're interested. I said, great. I said, what, uh, what do I need to do? He said, you just need to get on a plane and come to Pretoria and have a meeting. So I'm like, okay. So he was a serious guy. So if he's telling me to get on a plane to go to Pretoria, I knew it was serious. So I flew down there and met him. And um, he said, basically, the um, the Americans were involved in supporting, in a, at that point, in a small way, um, the rebels. They were interested in the insurgency, which was trying to overthrow President Taylor. But they had absolutely no intel on the ground inside. So it was in their interest that a filmmaker went in, made a film, and then they could basically see what was going on inside. I'm like, okay. Now, this is the point at which you're thinking, how naive are you, James? (laughs) How naive were you? 
And again, it comes down to like really, really wanting something. So it's like, yeah, okay. Um, sounds good to me. Um, but this is going to be a long time in very difficult conditions in, you know, a mixture of primary and secondary jungle for, you know, at least three weeks. Um, if anything goes wrong, you know, I've had a, uh, I had a, uh, I worked as a, a volunteer in a mission hospital for a while. I had to do a pretty basic medical skills, but nothing that was up to kind of like getting myself out of severe trouble, especially if it was, I was the one that had been injured. So Quibus had this great idea that he was going to send a friend of his with me called uh, Nick Detoy. And Nick uh, was South African, Afrikaans speaking, had also been in executive outcomes, had been his commanding officer in executive outcomes, um, and had also been a uh, lieutenant colonel in, actually ended up being a full colonel, in fact, in one of apartheid South Africa's um, special forces um, outfits. Now, at this point, I should probably have asked a lot more questions than I did. But basically, the deal was that Nick would come with me. He was a very experienced field medic and um, an operator, knew the area very well, and he would basically look after me. And of course, what ultimately transpired, to cut a long story short, is that the Americans were super keen on me going and making a film, but they were also super keen on Nick being with me, taking GPS coordinates of everything he could get his hands on and also taking photographs and making sure that that went back to the Americans. So it was a real, it was a, a textbook exercise in naive journalist meets the intelligence, the intelligence community, <laughs> but also, um, you know, and I've spoken to the, the guys who are on the American side. We all became, as you can imagine, very good mates at the end of it. And, you know, what they expected was going to be a three-week in and out. They might get some information, sort of a trip. Turned out for me, you know, I went in May 2002. I didn't finish working in Liberia until the end of 2003. I spent months and months on the ground living with that army. And the dynamic changed a lot. Um, Nick, you know, Nick and I were working with a production company which went bust. Um, I actually, I'll tell you about that. The, the, the original plan was that we were going to go into Liberia for three weeks. I was going to go with a cameraman, a sound man, Nick as my bodyguard medic, and me as a producer. And I had I had absolutely no idea what a producer did other than sort of make it happen. <laughs> so I went in with a very experienced camera operator, a very experienced sound man, and we're all on a three-week contract um, set up by a, a production company who thought we were going to get, um, you know, a good, a good uh, film out of this. And, you know, this is exclusive material, right? No, no one um, has filmed this war. <laughs> The United Nations disputes that there's an insurgency going on at all. Um, 
you know, the the UN line is that President Charles Taylor has invented the insurgency for a reason to break the arms embargo against his murderous regime, which had been responsible for causing war in Sierra Leone. So mm. as far as the international community was concerned, this wasn't happening. And for the UN, it was really embarrassing because they had 17,500 air-supported peacekeepers 200 miles away in Sierra Leone from a war which they were denying was even even existed. So I suddenly found it was embarrassing for the Brits as well. Brits didn't want me to do it because job done in Sierra Leone, all wrapped up, thanks very much. All of the uh, the Camajor, the civil defence forces that they've been training and using in defence of Freetown, they then turned around, acquiesced in charging their leader Hinga Norman with war crimes and then of course all the guys on the ground split and joined the rebels in Liberia so that was not in their interest either for the story to be told so suddenly I found myself in a position where actually at a sort of international stage the only people who were interested in helping and they really did help actually I mean like life and death help were the Americans of course they weren't interested in me committing an act of journalism but ultimately what they facilitated was a long documentary journalistic project that resulted in multiple award-winning films that wouldn't have been possible without their input and actually funnily enough because one of the things that the films i ended up making did do was expose the war crimes and human rights abuses that were being perpetrated by the rebels that they were supporting, in the end, they had to withdraw their support. So it ended up backfiring on them massively. But I, and I spoke to them afterwards about it, and they said, ultimately, you know, the guys, the guys on the ground, I mean, what they were thought in the Pentagon is another matter, but the guys on the ground were happy that the sort of full picture had come out. Um, but you know originally i went in for three weeks you know without a clue what i was doing three weeks later we'd walked an awfully long way into the interior i'd seen a bunch of rebels the leader we'd seen no firefights we'd seen no evidence that they were in any kind of position to threaten charles taylor and my cameraman and sound man said right well that's it our contract's up and they left um, they were escorted out of Liberia by the rebels, and I was left there alone with Nick, my bodyguard. Um, as the cameraman was leaving, he gave me a small video camera, a box of tapes. It was all did you know DV um, tape then, a um, couple of spare batteries and a charger. Uh, not that there was any electrical supply, I might add. And then and said, you know, they, you know, good luck. And he, he, as they walked off, he got. He got to the edge of the clearing and turned around and said, oh, you might find this handy and produced this sort of battered white booklet and gave it to me. And that was the instruction manual for the camera. <laughs> so they, they left. Nick and I were stuck there. Nick's second language was English. So we sort of between us worked out how the camera worked. And then we were stuck in this place in the middle of nowhere. The rebels wouldn't move forward because they didn't have any ammunition. Um, the government troops were nowhere to be seen. And then, so Nick and I started talking. Nick started telling me about all the stuff that he had been doing while he was in the army. And it turned out, um, I can actually hear some of your, your, 
your your listeners shaking their heads <laughs> and smiling to themselves at the moment. I, he was the founding father of a unit called Five Recce, Five Reconnaissance, and which essentially was um, a pseudo operations unit which fought in Mozambique. So they did deep, deep off the books undercover stuff where they went in, was set up a rebel group, trained them, and they would also conduct pseudo operations. Essentially, they, I mean, this sounds ludicrous, um, but, you know, they would, there were white troops and black South African troops uh, among them. They would all black up, put blackface paint on, do blackface. They'd then go and hit a target. And then that attack will be blamed on another African insurgency group. So essentially they would, and then they'd go and hit another group the same way and they get the two sides to blame each other. Hmm. Right. So that was standard practice and it happened all over the bush wars in, in Southern Africa. And, you know, he was involved in some very high profile raids against um, ANC headquarters, one particularly in Gaborone in Botswana. And it became clear to me that, you know, I was brought up in a liberal household. My grandfather, who was, uh, you know, a decorated war hero from the Second World War and a professional soldier um, as well. He was also a committed Christian socialist. Um, and I'd sort of grown up in, a, in an environment which equated the apartheid regime in South Africa with, you know, a moral equivalence to the Waffen SS. You know, there was no, the, you know, this, this apartheid and national socialism were effectively one in the same in, in the eyes of the people who brought me up. So for me to be sitting somewhere with my in, livelihood, safety, um, you know, the calibration for my moral compass in the hands of someone who I would have really thought twice about shaking hands with. Um, was suddenly like the reality of the situation started to confront me. And then he got very, very ill. He got very severe amoebic dysentery. And it got to the point where we had no meds because when we'd been crossing a massive flooded river on the way there, we'd lost our meds bag. So we, I mean, we're lucky we didn't lose ourselves in the process. Um, so he got to a point where I thought he died. You know, it's quite hard. I mean, I'm sure a lot of your listeners will you know, appreciate this and hopefully not too many people have firsthand experience of this, but it's very hard to tell when someone's dead. You know, it's, you stare and look at them and you, all the things you think you can do that will tell you is that can be really difficult, you know. Um, and uh, I, was, I was convinced he was dead. And then eventually I saw a little f flutter in his um, thorax and his, um, and then there was, there was breath and then he kicked his legs and then he just sort of from there recovered. <laughs> um, and I was like, I'm like, like, okay. And as he started to recover, um, I got really sick and I got so, so ill. I mean, like really, really severe amoebic dysentery and you know, you know what that means. No drugs. I mean, it got to the point where I could just about crawl to the edge of the hut we were in, stick my ass out of the door and um, let loose a stream of blood and pus onto the steps that would get washed away by 
the monsoon rains and then crawl back in. And then, you know, Nick would help me down to the latrine. He'd like strap me, put my arm across his shoulder and then literally pull down my trousers, hold me up by my wrists while I shat into a ditch and then carry me back to the hut, you know, wipe my ass and put me back to bed. And eventually it was, I, was, I was really in a bad way. And one of the rebels went off on a 50-mile walk to the nearest clinic and came back with a handful of metronidazole tablets. And that cured me. After that moment, I mean, there's a point at which when a, when a bloke you don't know has held you up by your wrist so you can shit into a ditch, you're either mates or you're not. Mm. And we, we were mates. Mm. And I, I learned more and more about what he'd done the things he'd done in the army. I learned more and more about his worldview, his vision, his morality. And I sure as hell didn't agree with half of it, but I began to un- I began to understand it, you know? And if you don't understand something, you can't fight it. So he and I, you know, and we, uh, there was a, I think he respected me for like, having pulled through it and I respected him for having pulled me through it and we started to chat and you know I think at first he thought I was just sort of you know skinny dickhead Englishman and but we were stuck in each other's company for a long time um and then you know we got down to the front line and it just and it kicked off and we we spent 28 days pretty much continuously in, in combat um firefights every day um long long drawn out attacks on the town that we were in we were 35 miles outside of the capital of monrovia we got surrounded on three sides by the government army troop the rebels regularly ran out of ammunition and it uh you know it got it got it got brutal um he at one point physically pulled me out of the way of um an rpg um he i I was not thinking straight (laughs) should we say um we we filmed a lot of you know 20 30 40 yard contacts very close well for me it was very close stuff i mean i think for what nick had done in the bush war and in uh around south africa that was all sort of like it was all fairly tame but it felt like uh i mean you know to me they felt like huge battles i think to anyone that's actually been in the battle they were really just skirmishes but it made a a big impact on me um and and it got it got weird as well you know it got really weird um the rebels started executing their prisoners filmed a lot of executions saw a lot of executions um and then the you know towards the end they started not only shooting but then also eating their prisoners and that got quite difficult for a while what's it like to be on this almost on the sidelines of um like well well the two different things one like a, a firefight to be on the sidelines and that, and to not have a weapon in your hands, but you know you've got a camera, and then um, and then also to, you know at the out of there's because there's 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 kind of like there's hot violence and then there's cold violence, right? So there's one thing for there's bullets flying around, but then 
the kind of the more deliberate act almost of somebody then executing someone that's helpless at that point. Um, how did that make you think? Like, was there almost like a disconnect because you were looking through it through a camera, or how how did it work? Right for the hot violence, uh, which is a good good way of describing it. Well, it's really hard for me to make a judgment about it and the difference between being an active participant in the sense of having a weapon and fighting, because I've never had a weapon and fought in a skirmish like that. So it's very hard for me to describe exactly what the difference would be. Um, But what I can say is there's a lot of bullshit spoken by journalists and people who comment on frontline journalism about the need to be objective um, in reporting when you're reporting conflict. And I, if you're involved in conflict, if you're there, physically there, there's a point at which you are going to take measures for your own survival. And the point at which you take measures for your own survival, you are necessarily participating. And the point at which you're participating, you're necessarily no longer objective. And I argue that it's, it's impossible to be objective at war. And you shouldn't try to be. It's, it's a nonsense. I think that you can be authentic and your work can be credible. But that doesn't necessarily mean objectivity. You know, like if it's really going off and someone says to you, uh, pass me that box of ammo, were you, you going to say no? No, sorry, sorry, mate. I'm not. No, just get it, get it, get it yourself. Why not? Like, of course you are. Mm-hmm. You know, after the battle, if someone's been injured, am I going to refuse to 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 treat their wounds? Of course not. You know, and it, it's it, you don't have to pick up a weapon and shoot at someone to be a participant in in a firefight. There are, there are lots of other things you can do which directly or indirectly mean that you are definitely participating. But from a sort of, from a, from the sense in which I think you, sorry, I've gone off a bit of a tangent there, but the, from the sense in which I think you originally meant, after Liberia, I went on to film a lot of different conflicts in a lot of different places. And one thing that began in Liberia that remained true was you quickly know, quickly work out who's got their shit together and who hasn't. Who who do you trust and who don't you trust? And there are a couple of rebels who were solid. They'd had military training. They knew what they were doing. They weren't hot-headed, you know. They were soldiers as we, as, as you know, as we, we'd think of soldiers. And there was Nick. And I watched Nick very closely. Um, you know, when I went on to work with um, um, the Americans in Iraq or Afghanistan or, you know, different people in different places, there's always someone who you trust to be doing the right thing. There's like the canary in the mine. And when you see them start to react in a certain way, you know, it's, it's you know, you, you, you know which way the wind is blowing. Um. So the what the camera does is it acts as 
a kind of blinker. You get, I mean, extraordinary tunnel vision. I found I got extraordinary tunnel vision in combat anyway. And you have to remember that I don't have any of the training that presumably tries to tries to stop that from happening. You know, I get, you know, you get very sucked into sometimes like the square meter of ground in front of you, never mind a kind of 360, you know, appraisal of what's going on. Now I've learned over the years to try and keep my focus as wide as possible at times, you know, um, to be looking a short way ahead of me down the road and a long way ahead of me down the road to be looking at, um, rooftops to be looking down side alleys to be looking you know especially in iraq you know you kind of really focus in on that stuff but when you're lying on the ground and it's all going off around you and you've got a camera like the world just shrinks to your viewfinder and that's i think is the reason a lot of my colleagues who are very very good very experienced uh, extremely capable professionals have been killed or injured is because you just if you don't have someone looking out for you, if you don't have someone who's watching your back, actually literally watching your back, um, it, it's very hard to both do your job as a camera operator and also make sure that you're not overly vulnerable. So it's, it's, it's obviously it's adrenal. Obviously it's extremely exciting um, and, and terrifying. I, I, I subsequent to doing that in Liberia, I found that anyone who said that they weren't scared in a firefight was either an idiot or hadn't fully understand the nature of the situation that they were in. But there's a really different thing between fear, which is actually quite good because it, for me anyway, it focused me, it sharpened me up, it made me concentrate um and and not take things for granted and panic uncontrolled fear which is potentially lethal to you and other people so um i was frequently scared i felt fear you know every day for weeks um but i never panicked and the the camera is a funny thing you know it's it it offers a kind of protection, but you have to be very careful. You know, people have asked me sometimes with you know things that I refused to film. I was like wallpaper to the rebels. I was just there all the time, and you know, obviously, it's not like I blended in. Like Nick and I were the only two white guys for like hundreds and hundreds of miles. Like clearly, you know, a six foot four, you know, massive white man standing in the middle of a rebel army, like. In, in Liberia, of course, I stood out a mile. Um, but in terms of like, just go, I ate the same food that they did. I walked the same distances that they did. I smoked the same shit cigarettes that they did. I had the same recourse to medical supplies that they did. To all intents and purposes, we were, we were in the same environment. Um, and, you know, I would sit around with uh, senior rebels and we talk about, you know, girlfriends back home um normal life what we do after the war we share the last of our cigarettes they give me the last of their rice rations we chat away and then in the morning i'd film them executing prisoners if you have filmed everything and you're and 
you're just filming the, the everyday mechanics of life, whether it's lighting a campfire through to, you know, setting up a mortar to whatever it is. And then suddenly you, you conspicuously refuse to film something. That's a really powerful statement. And I knew intuitively that if I suddenly started refusing to film things, it would put my life at risk. And I just kept filming, just kept going. And there's, and again, then there's the argument of like, well, are they actually genuinely doing this or are they only doing it for the camera? And I, I can absolutely definitely tell you that they were doing it anyway. So the cold, the cold, cold violence was, was hard to get one's head round. You know, it's one thing to, in the heat of battle, someone's killed, you know, that's difficult and it can be, you know, grisly and bloody and upsetting and all, all those things or not. Actually, sometimes, you know, you can, you know, witness people get killed in quite unpleasant circumstances and it just sort of, you know, it's another thing that happens that day, especially if you don't have a close emotional um, attachment to someone. But the cold violence is a little different because it's very calculated. It's very calculated. And I, there was one um, execution I filmed where a guy had been, he was a young guy. I mean, he must have been 17, maybe 16, 17, been taken prisoner. He'd been wounded in the arm, but not badly. Um, he'd been stripped naked, slipped down to his underpants, his arms tied behind his back. Um, and he, I was filming the scene and I, that was quite early on in the atrocities. And I had this sort of feeling that if I'm seen to film this guy and I'm clearly documenting what's happening, they're not going to kill him. And there's one moment on tape where you can see this kid kind of smile at me. It's almost like a thank you. Um, and then they knelt him down and shot him in the back. And I felt so shaken by that. You realize this day, there's, there's very little you can do. Um, and I watched this guy, you know, they, they basically shot him in the back and blew his lungs out through his chest. And he was lying on the ground in sort of death rigors. And, uh, I turned around to the rebel standing next to me and I said, I think he's still alive. And the rebel looked at me and said, Oh, um, should I shoot him again? I just went and sat down and smoked a cigarette and Nick came and sat next to me. It's like, and, uh, this, it's really hard to know what to say. It's really hard to know how to process that. Even like, as I sit and explain it, as go through it again with you, and it's been, you know, 18 years since that happened. It's still, I can hear people saying, why didn't you object? Why didn't you try and stop it? And it's, I, I just, it's hard to explain why that sometimes just isn't possible. Yeah, absolutely, dear. I mean, I'm sure anyone who's been in Iraq and Afghanistan listening will have had the same thing happen, you know, with Afghan army. Um, you know, I've seen, saw that happen myself. You know, it's 
Um, it's one of those things where it's um, it's easy for people to kind of um, condemn those actions, um, obviously. But I think one of the things that you said is that you actually recognize that this was something that, you know, instead of being like, this is something that other people are capable and I never would be, that you could actually, you know, because you'd spent time talking to these guys and you knew the stories about girlfriends and all that stuff, that you're thinking like, oh, fuck, this is something that I'm capable of too. Is that how you feel? I think the way that I felt about it was that it's an illusion that other people are savages. It's an illusion that other people are always the bad guy. It's an illusion that um, foreigners and people that don't look like us are the people that commit war crimes. Because we're, I wouldn't say that everyone is capable of it, but every society is capable of it. Once you strip away the architecture of war, you get rid of like the crazy headdress or the Kalashnikov or, you know, the old, car keys or whatever it is yeah and you're just down to like a bloke you realize that the truly horrifying thing for me was that i had much more in common with these people than i had that separated me from them that was the thing that really wigged me out was you you weren't looking at some like you know apartheid wasn't didn't arrive on earth by space aliens the nazis weren't you know like intergalactic travelers who like mysteriously visited this upon society they were incredibly well educated articulate human beings who loved going to the opera and committing mass murder and we've done it too the british army has done it too it's it's not it's we're not immune to it it's really important to remember that and it, if all if all society is if all civility is is a mask then we should make sure that mask is fucking nailed to our faces and doesn't slip because it's horrific when it slips and i would rather live with the knowledge that actually it's all a facade than the reality of what it means when the gloves are off because it, I, you know, I, I just, to, to watch a society go through the consequences of, you know, do what that will shall be the whole of the law is, is, is a, ter- is a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing. Yeah. I think that that problem of not recognizing it in the, the potential of your own society to do it is what perpetuates, you know, it's, it's what means it's going to happen again and again and again. Um, you know, like the, I'm not saying that it's something that's in the near future in America or anything, but a lot of the, like the absolute hatred for one group against the other there at the moment is really kind of scary because you're thinking, well, there's, there's only way, there's only one direction that this goes when people, when people hate another group and blame another group and fear for their safety because of another group, that only ends in one destination. It really pays to be extremely cautious, I think. And I'm not sure that one of the things about, okay, I was going to a good puff up for Britain, I think, is that however difficult it can be here, there are a lot of checks and balances that are very difficult to completely override. 
however battered and bruised our constitution can feel at times, and particularly recently, it still functions. And, you know, we don't live somewhere where there are large, well-armed militias. We don't live somewhere where we're both militarized and polarized. However bitter the disputes have been over what we may or may not think this government has done over COVID or what in someone's position is about Brexit, we are fundamentally, with a couple of outlying extremes, we're still fundamentally having a conversation, even if it's a very unpleasant one at times. My fear is in, is in America is that they that there will come a point in which people simply just, there is no mechanism for dialogue. And at that, that, at that point, then, you know, all, all bets are off. But please, please God, it doesn't ever come to that. I, I hope not. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about was the press, because, you know, for me, I look at the mainstream media in America and I feel like it's the enemy of the state. You know, it's the one thing that seems to be, you know, the one just push, you know, just pushing sides against each other, you know, creating division, masquerading under this idea that it's, it's you know, that it's news and reporting. You know, what what's it like for you as a journalist seeing seeing what, um, you know, that, that kind of reporting of, like, you know, quote-unquote reporting over there. Well, there are people that will know about this better than I do, but I believe that it was during the 80s, during the Reagan administration, that the obligation for the news media to be uh, fair and objective in their reporting was dropped. And I think that that has led to a the the sort of an, an a form of ideological reporting that we just don't have in this country although obviously there's you know there's a left-wing press and a right-wing press and there are you know different news outlets are going to see things differently they are regulated you know channel 4 the bbc um itv are regulated and that's really important, and that's not the case um, in the same way in the states. So, and I think that's really profoundly unhelpful. And actually, it would be enormously helpful if that requirement was reinstated. But of course, no government is going to do that if they feel that doing it is going to cost them support in the media. So, you know, I, I, I feel America has gone a long way down a route of journalistic partiality, which is not true in all cases. There are some excellent, rigorous news outlets and organizations in the States who are, you know, fighting the good fight. But, Essentially, you know, so much of the media has become part of the political process rather than commenting on the political process in a way which informs that I, I, I'm not, I, I'm not really sure where you go from here. I don't, I, I, and as a, as a, as a journalist, like working in this country, you know, everything, you know, if I'm working for Channel 4, everything is bound by Ofcom. We have, you know, if you want to film, um, 
secretly, if you want to film with children, if you want to film in the public domain, if you want to film in a hospital, it's very, you know, never mind getting into political impartiality. It's, it's very clearly defined. There are rules and regulations. And if someone thinks that the channel has broken them or a journalist has broken them, there's a procedure to go through. And then, you know, reparations have to be made if they're found to be in breach of them, which is important. But there's another over, overwhelming aspect to it which is that you can have all the regulations and caveats and parameters to work within and you can work to the letter of them but if you fund if society is fundamentally at a place where people don't want to accept the spirit of of that then again you're in a difficult place and i you know it's very clear that in in this country there are news outlets which just media outlets i should say more accurately which just say or print things which aren't simply are not true um and that's does everyone a disservice it's very clear that there are a number of politicians who regularly say things publicly as statements which simply are not true they are verifiably untrue and we need to have a media that can say this statement is incorrect this is not true and uh, because ultimately when people go to the polls they need to be able to have in their mind certainty of what of what is truth and what isn't and we're at a position for a number of different reasons, from the, from the internet, social media, um, partiality in the press, to where it's extremely difficult for anyone who's outside of that world to really be certain of what the truth is, and that's 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 that puts democracy into a really bad really bad place because you're not. It's a it's a difference between voting for a left wing or a right wing government. If I know that one plus one equals two, and I know that if I vote for this government, I'm going to pay this much tax, and this government, I'm going to pay that much tax, and this tax is going to be used for these, this purpose, or this tax reduction is going to be used for that purpose, fine. Have an ideological difference. That's yeah, great. You know, fine. But if I go into that, and I've been told consistently that one plus one equals three, and make all of my political judgments based on the fact that three is true, well, what value is the ultimate result? And I, I don't know how people now, the, the mass of, of the electorate, I don't know how they will solve that political equation. I just, I wish I could tell you, I probably make a lot of money as a political pundit, but I don't know. Yeah. I just don't know. All right, guys, we'll be back to the podcast in one second. I just want to say a huge thank you to the Royal British Legion because without them, there is no podcast. Guys, they make it happen here. Believe me, um, and I'm, I'm being fully, fully open here. Without the po- without the Royal British Legion, there wouldn't be a podcast. They make this financially viable. Um, basically, uh, I'd like to be a lot richer than I am, but I'm not. And the Royal British Legion are, um, are covering costs for this podcast and helping it run. Um, we really, really appreciate it. And they do a lot more than that, guys. They offer everything from financial um, from financial assistance and advice 
to care homes. They've got it all going on. And one of the things that I love about the Royal British Legion so much is that they're not just interested in the day-to-day of our modern lives. They are they are interested in keeping alive the memories of those who have gone before us, which is so fucking important. Um, it's one of the things we want to do here on the podcast, and the Royal British Legion do it so well. They do it through, obviously, the events that they organise, um, not so much of those at the moment, unfortunately, due to COVID, but there is still a lot going on online, and you can find it all at RBL org.uk or at Royal British Legion. I'll tag them up in everything, guys. Just follow the links in the notes, follow the links on my social media posts, and you'll find them on there. They're doing a lot of work to keep to keep the sacrifices remembered. And you know, we all say it, don't we? We will remember them and we must remember them. And the Royal British Legion are a huge part of that. So please go and give them a follow. Alright, guys, thanks for listening. Let's get back to the podcast. I, I write novels now. I make it all up. Maybe that's the answer. Yeah. Maybe the actual, the actual short answer is, I don't know, and that's why I write novels, because now I make it up. Once upon a time, I was a professional truth teller, and now I, too, am a professional liar, because I just make it up. Being, being a professional liar, though, is, is, is a, it's a great way to make a, a living. I want to come on to that before we finish up, but I do want to ask you something first, because you were saying about, because I agree, you were very lucky being British. Um, this country has its issues, as does every country, but I still feel like we won the lottery being born here. And um, what's it like being a parent who, obviously, you've seen a lot of the world, you know what can happen out there, you know what is happening out there, but at the same time, presumably, you don't want to be waking your kids up in the morning and saying, watch this video about what's going on in, in, in Libya or something. You know? So how do, you ba- how do you balance up that, you know, raising kids with giving them an idea of what's going on in the world and how lucky they are, but at the same time, you know, not making them want to curl up in, a, in, a, in the closet? Well, first of all, I just, because I can hear my Irish family banging their fists on the table so i just make it clear at this point that i am half english and half irish <laughs> english and, and irish passport holder um one grandfather is also scottish and um which which rugby team know, do you support that's the question <laughs> i'm not answering that it's england anyway you know, it's my, definitely england <laughs> I'm, not answer, I'm not answering that <laughs> fill the blanks in yourself um so yes there's sort of more of a british yes but British and Irish sensibilities, and you know, I think I think we're 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 blessed and cursed being neighbours in e- in equal measure, probably. Um, possibly leave it at that. Um, with the um, with the kids, you know, it's been really difficult because um, my best mate um, is a photographer called Tim Hetherington, who was my son's godfather was killed um, by a mortar in Libya in 2011. And it took a long time. And I I was still working, you know, making films in in difficult places. And it was really hard to explain to the kids, well, this is your godfather. This is how he died. Oh, and daddy does the same thing. Mm. So I um, took a sort of decision not to really to tell them very much about the work that I did, have done, and to focus more on the writing and um, the sort of the more sort of executive side of the, of of what I do. 
Um, and only recently, my daughter's 13, my son's um, 11. Um, only recently I've started to share more with them and tell them about things. And, you know, I sort of, I dug an, I dug an old um, Afghan army helmet out of the attic the other day, which I picked up near Jalalabad back in 2001, um, which was being worn by someone on the wrong end of a, of an airstrike. And, um, it's hanging up on my son's wall now (laughs) standard (laughs) so you know so and so we sort of you know there are various objects and souvenirs and things that i've collected that i give them and we talk about them and where they come from and the history behind them which is a good way of getting them into it and we've looked at a lot of maps and we will put pins in the maps where we've all been either on holiday or for work or whatever and i sort of try and you know, make sure that they understand that they're very lucky, that they're very privileged, that they shouldn't take this way of life for granted. That it's extremely difficult to impress that upon a child. And I don't think you should try too hard either, to be honest, at this age. Um, but also to make clear that, you know, we enjoy freedoms um, that were fought for. You know, it's not obvious that we live in a free society. It's not obvious that we live in a prosperous society. It wasn't obvious that these things should come to pass. They came to pass because very brave, dedicated men and women fought to make it that way. Um, close to home, their grandparents. Um, further away, an entire entire generations of people. You know, I mean, we live down on a on the south coast um, near Dover, down on, on the beach in a little village there, and um, quite regularly you get um, Spitfires will fly over. Oh wow! And it's great. You know, I mean, like really regularly, the people you know fly them out and down mm. on the coast, and um, you know that rolls that Merlin Rolls Royce engine, man. That that's the sound of freedom. That that is, you know, and those yeah. those pilots. Um, their their great great uncle included, you know, with a hope of the free world. So, it's a balance between, I think, making sure that they understand that there is a debt and an obligation that arises from it. You can't. You can't. You know, how do you discharge your your debt to a dead generation? Right? How do you dis how do you discharge your debt to the people that were cut down on the Normandy beaches? <laughs> how, how can you begin to do that? Right? And I think the only way that you can do it is to understand what your obligations are as a participant in a free, independent, democratic society. Inform yourself take part in the political process, be kind, be educated, get out there and just, you know, if you don't like something in society, then set out to change it in a reasonable way. You know, don't either, you know, sit at home fuming about it or go and wreck stuff. Don't, for them, it's, you know, it's always to make sure that they're 
creative and focused and yes you can like bombard them with pictures of like what's happening in libya at the moment or you know the the end you know the the long drawn out end of the war in syria and it fundamentally it's important that they see it it's important they know about it it's necessarily very distant but for them to start interacting with like situations in countries where i've worked well, that becomes a little bit closer to home you know to stand them in a uh, in a cemetery in normandy that that really brings it home so i think it's you know it's slow, slowly slowly that you know they're, they're I mean, I don't know. They must take after their mother. They're bright children. <laughs> um, so thank goodness. Um, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll work it out. I think it's about a foundation. It's about, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it's about just give, giving them a foundation and also of tolerance. You know, it's, you know, my, 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 um, my, my dad's dad, um, you know, was born in, in a, a, a small, born in a village in the west of Ireland in, 1913 and he was a, a very you know he was, he, was a, he was a great man i loved him very much but he, he was a very considering his upbringing in extremely you know catholic rural ireland he was a very liberated liberal guy and i always sort of slightly you know, I've always bridled when people say, oh, yeah, well, of course he did. You know, when someone, you know, many years ago did something that was unpleasant or violent or racist or whatever, that that's somehow okay because they were, he was a man of his time. So, well, my grandfather was a man of his time as well, and he didn't do any of those things. And he knew that they were wrong. So I think just like, you know, the best that you can do for your children is to calibrate their moral compass, and keep them pointing true north. and you know, everyone needs a pole star. Everyone needs something to, to navigate by. And, um, and uh, I, I think you, you just, you give them the tools to find their own North star. I think that's the best you can do. Mm, yeah. I love that. They're taking them to the, to, uh, if you take someone to a graveyard, um, to the cemeteries in, in Normandy and all these different countries. I mean, that's the thing. They're all over the place. Is you you don't have to do any talking. Then you let the place let the place do the talking for you. And I think if you put kids in that situation, they're clever. They'll put two and two together, and they don't need it. Like the the idea of like you know the old there's kids in Africa who'd love to have that food. When you're shouting that at a kid, they have no context to put it in. It means you know it means absolutely nothing. It's just about giving people opportunity to see things for themselves. Totally, yeah, I completely agree with you completely agree with you so i want to talk about obviously um get to indulge in my own thing here a bit which is the uh the writing side of things uh we work with the same editor actually you work with roland on this right that's absolutely right yes uh, with roland White. oh great yeah i've done a couple of books with um roland so it was funny when i got the the message from the guys the other day i was like i was like i said was roland the editor on this book because this uh <laughs> this sounds exactly like up his street um so you've written you've written non-fiction books about your time um, around the world on your, should we call them adventures? Um, and then you've, uh, so you've written about those. Why the change into fiction? The change from writing fact, um, you know, my first book was a, a memoir called My Friend and Mercenary, which is about that time in Liberia. Um, the, the desire to change, um, sort of direction and start writing fiction was really again a sort of happy accident really 
Um, and my editor at Penguin first got in contact with me. He wasn't my editor then, of course, but became became my editor. He said, you know, we've read um, your nonfiction stuff and uh, and really like it. And what, what we'd really like is a, a thriller that's set um, in Africa because there's very little fiction that's set in Africa. Okay. I'd begun to write something a while ago and thought, oh, maybe I can... This is this this is that. So I sort of I thought about it very carefully, and I came up with this character called Max McLean, who's um, he's actually half Irish and half Russian, but he's he he volunteered into the British Army into the parachute regiment, and then very quickly is fast tracked down a selection route that puts him into. Um, uh, an off-the-books um, black operations unit. And he essentially is a spy assassin um, who works on behalf of the British government, but he's been debadged. He's completely deniable. He doesn't actually hold a rank. His identity is completely obscure. Um, he's completely, you know, fundamentally expendable. Um, but of course, he himself has a, a double secret identity because when he runs away to join the British army, um, he, when he joins the army, he changes his identity in the process. So there's a sort of double, a double layer there. And what we see in the books is Max's original life starting to filter through into the life he's created for himself in the army with things percolating up, old allegiances, family members, problems, ideologies, starting to break through into his work as, you know, an agent for the British government. And so there are two, there are two books in a, in a series, but they can be read in any order. You don't have to read one and then start with the other. The first one I wrote was called The Break Line, which sees Max go on... Um, a very difficult operation in West Africa, which has already driven his best mate, a very, very tough special forces operator out of his mind and left him uh, insane. And he sort of, he goes to West Africa to find out what this horror is to, and to confront it. And the second book, um, Archangel, which is going to be published 20th of August, is sort of following on from that, but again, I say you don't have to read them one after the other. He's had a long, Max has had a long period of not being operational. He's had several months of recovery, deciding that he's going to come back into, um, into the mob. And he he's immediately sent on an operation which goes spectacularly wrong. It's a very straightforward, very simple job, which is to um, assassinate an old uh, terrorist in Northern Ireland. And it just goes absolutely peetong. And everyone goes absolutely tonto 
as a result. <laughs> it's because not... <laughs> I hope this is on the back cover. <laughs> not, not only does it go wrong, but he makes several decisions in the process of it going wrong and immediately afterwards. Essentially, he disobeys orders and starts to do what he thinks is the right thing to do, not what he's been told to do. And this generates a massive chain reaction. So where normally, however difficult things are, he has the mechanics of the organization he belongs to. He has, you know, he can call on Hereford to help him out. He's got, you know, MI6 providing him with intel. Suddenly, he's at first completely cut off and then is being hunted himself. And he doesn't know who is hunting him or why or what the ultimate purpose of the mission really was if indeed there was an ulterior purpose to it. And so while he's being hunted, he also needs to try and unravel what's really going on. And, you know, essentially... And of course, as he's doing this, there are lots of things from his old, old life before he changed his name um, to McLean and joined the British Army. His old life starts breaking through into this manhunt, which makes it even more difficult for him to make rational decisions because he's constantly facing very hard truths about his childhood and people that he was once loyal to and questioning whether he should remain loyal to them even if they're no longer alive or with him. And it, uh, one of the things that really excited me about writing fiction was that, well, actually, the number of things that excited me about it. One of, one of, one of them was that um, I met so many interesting people when I was working as a journalist. I met a lot of people who worked in the secret world, a lot of people who worked in small undercover units um, or who were assigned to different special operations outfits who, you know, as a journalist would never tell me what they did, never told me how they would operate. If I'd asked them for an interview, would have laughed. As soon as you start writing fiction, people start tripping over themselves to help you <laughs> um you know i mean extraordinary right so there are lots of things that people told me off the record friends would say oh yeah of course no, we did this but of course you can't you can't ever publish that and i'll be like fine and so you know that thing we talked about what happens if i you know change the country and the name and uh, would that be all right and they're like yeah go on so what i was able to do is like max is uh is a creation but all and the and the overarching plots are of course you know fiction they're totally invented but the but all of the details are as absolutely rigorously accurate as i can get them and i have a, a sort of group of people that i work with really carefully who's profession was probably as close as it's possible to get 
to max in the real world um, would give me you know very detailed information on how exactly this person is going to meet their end um, what hardware we're going to use what the drawbacks might be um, and I've I've tried uh, it's a funny thing really I thought when I started writing fiction I'd be able to um, start making stuff up and actually the opposite is true. It's like the details are so rigorously researched. And, you know, like 99%. I mean, basically, I think I'm probably writing novels like for your listeners is essentially what it boils down to. There's such a tiny minority of people yeah. who would know whether these things were correct or not. But I really, like there are people, friends of mine who are either still serving or who are now out if they read it, I would want them, uh, if they read it and, and cringed or winced or like, oh, no, we'd never do that. Or oh, that's ridiculous. Uh, I wanted to avoid that at all cost. This sort of handful of people that I really respected and admired, I wanted to make sure that if they read it, they'd be like, yeah, okay, spot on. And when it gets to the crazy stuff, they just have a chuckle and say, yeah, right. Okay. That's the bit that turns it into a movie or whatever. You know, that's that, that's the fiction bit. Fine. You know, it's a novel. It's not a dot, you know, it's not a memoir, um, clearly. Um, but so it's a sort of mixture of being able to use a load of stuff from my professional life that I couldn't otherwise having a real interest in like getting all the details right and telling the story properly. And then also the thing with Max is that he's, Max McLean, my, my, my main man, my character, he is not a spring chicken, you know? He's not 25 and ripped and, you know, going for it. He's in his early 40s and at the end of being operational for nearly 20 years. And he's just had enough. And he, he's questioning whether he should be doing things for himself, for the government. He works very closely with a, with his handler, a guy called Frank Knight. You know, should, is his loyalty to Frank? You know, what, why is he doing what he, what he's doing? And he's, you know, and he's killing people. He's in no uncertain terms, very viscerally, um, killing people and uh, quite a lot of people. And he, it's starting to weigh on him. Like, why am I doing this? What, what's the what's the point? And he, he's also fundamentally an outsider. He's not British. He's half Irish, and he's half Russian. Mm. And he has very divided loyalties about, you know, what the what the what the truth of any situation is. And he's, you know, he's. He's deeply conflicted and he's never, he deals a lot with people who are on the inside, the mainstream, the, you know, the director of special forces, the top brass, the politicians and you know, the, the head shed MI6, you know, all the you know, C and C's cronies. But actually he's never really, they need him and they rely on him, but he's never in that circle of trust. He's always on the outside looking in. And it's got to the point where it's like, well, 
is is now the time where I start doing something for myself. And of course, the decision of whether he does or doesn't has seismic ramifications, not just for him, but of course, the job that he's involved in has massive implications for the security of the United Kingdom. Yeah, I, I, I read I read Breakline. Um, when I, obviously, I haven't read the new one yet, but I read Breakline. I really enjoyed it. And you could just tell that it was written by somebody who knew the knew the players and knew the places. Um, mm. It just, it just, I like it when you, um, you can when you when you it's when you hear the noises and the, the you can feel the heat of a place and you can it's the, you can feel the dust and everything like that. You get where you're like, ah, oh, this motherfucker's been here. You just know that they've been to these like West African villages and the interactions with the you know because like a lot of the time you know you read when you know people haven't travelled the the people in different countries they interact the same as they would do in London, which is not true. You know, every different place has its different cultures and customs, and um, it really came through. I really enjoyed this. I'm looking forward to the new one, mate. I'm mad at Penguin because they didn't send me a proof copy. <laughs> I was hoping for a. I think they're really struggling um, with because of COVID with getting books out the warehouse. Yeah, I but um, I shall I shall put a rocket up them. Attempt to get a book to, book over to you. Yeah, because I I enjoyed I enjoyed the first one a lot, mate. So um, I definitely recommend. Like, like you say, mate, I definitely recommend for listeners of this podcast. Um, I think that if like. If you enjoy a bit of shooty shooty, <laughs> and if you enjoy a bit of shooty shooty and getting around the world, then um, you'll you'll enjoy you'll enjoy the book, um, mate. Thanks for coming on today, mate. Is there anything that you'd like to uh, leave our, our guests with? Any parting words of wisdom that you think that they could uh, they could benefit from, from from your experiences over the last few years, um, particularly when it comes to kind of putting not obviously putting things totally behind you because I don't think that's ever something that we ever do, but of uh, of living a, a happy and a healthy life. Well, actually, I think you've hit the nail on the head. The first step is to really come to terms with the fact that if you've had a hard time and if you've seen and done stuff that's difficult, you aren't ever really going to be able to put it behind you. You aren't going to be able to forget it. The trick is to absorb it. If you try and cut bad memories out and pretend it like it never happened or suppress stuff, it all just come back one day anyway. You really have to absorb it, accept the things that you've seen and find a way to keep going anyway. And then the way that you do find forward will be a way that you can keep traveling on. Um, the more stuff you try and sort of repress or bury, the more likely it is to trip you up later down the line. Um, I've, you know, I, 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 I strongly in favour of um, of counselling, and I had post traumatic stress counselling. I think it's a really good step to take. Um, and it, like, if you had any listeners that were wondering whether or not it would be a good idea, then definitely do it. I thought the I thought my counsellor was going to be an idiot. Couldn't possibly help me because you know he wasn't there. How could he have known what it was like? Um, but actually. It's not really the deal. It's about having a space to talk in. Um, but, you know, counselling is only going to get you so far. And I, this, you know, I can't say anything that no one's already, you know, hasn't already said. I, I, I look for meaning um, in the things that I do. And I try and be as creative as I can. Um, and uh, the two things that I did, you know, obviously, children and 
home life aside, the, the two things that I did that made the biggest difference to me, this is going to sound ridiculous, by the way, but here it goes. I haven't ever said this before, so I was going to put it out there right now. The first one is I learned how to bake bread. And if I'm having a shit day, which I still do sometimes, um, I get up in the morning and I bake a loaf of bread. And it doesn't matter what else goes wrong that day, what I achieve or don't, how many words are right or don't, who gets cross with me, who doesn't. I've done this one thing in the morning and I can sit down and I can give it to my kids. I can eat it myself, uh, you know, give it to a neighbor, you know, whatever. Um, I've achieved something. By six o'clock in the morning, I've baked a loaf of bread, job done. Everything else from there on is gravy. Um, second thing, I swore, absolutely swore blind that I would never have a dog. And then my ex bought a dog and um, I've, ended, <laughs> I've ended up becoming the dog father. And it is like, it's the best thing that I've done. Just, <laughs> you know, it, I mean, it's, if someone's in the yard, he barks. Like I don't have to constantly, I find myself, I used to find myself sitting sometimes alone at home, listening for, for problems. It's crazy. I live in like, I live in Kent. You know, I would listen for like, oh, was that the back gate? Was that someone walking on the path? Mm. And like his hearing, he'll pick up someone like sneezing on the seafront 200 yards away. And suddenly it's like, oh, I can relax. Do you know what I mean? It's like, is there's a problem. He's, he's going to spot it before I do. Um, <laughs> and she's just doesn't give you a hard time. Listens to every, listens to all of my bad jokes. Um, great walking companion. You know, like sometimes I, I, I love, I, I do a lot of walking. You go out walking by yourself and, you know, that's, which is great. As soon as you've got a dog, well, you've got an excuse to get out of the house. I've got an excuse to do nothing and go for a walk because I'm giving the dog some exercise. So between having a dog and learning to bake a loaf of bread, um, I think I've done more for my mental health than years and years of pondering. Yeah, mate, it's the, the simple things can make a big difference. I'm totally on board with you with the one of winning, getting, the, like getting a win under your belt at the beginning of the day that's under your that's under your control and then you know and everything else to fall into place but we, I could, we could do all of our episode on this mate and I hope you will come back on at some point you, you're welcome at, welcome any time because I'd love, I'd love I've to. got a, three pages of questions here we got through half of a page <laughs> <laughs> but that's 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 how it goes mate um, but yeah I'd love to have you back on mate thanks so much for giving up your time today and I'm really glad that you didn't pass out on us in your uh, <laughs> in, in, in your in the little heat steam room you've got going on all I can say is I'm very glad this is not a video interview because that, <laughs> that kind of publicity I can do without. But it's been a real, it's been a, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. And I'd love to come back on any any time, man, any time. Once uh, I've managed to get August twentieth as a book, right? Once the mm-hmm. once the book's out, give us a chance to read it, and then let's come back on and let's talk a bit. Of, I'd love to talk more about. Um, I'd love to talk more about dealing with PTSD, routine, all that kind of stuff, and also, um, obviously, selfishly, I want to talk to a fellow writer as well and get down into some get down into some writing details. Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. Well, thanks so much, James. Um, I'll let everyone know where they can find you online and I'll tag everything up in the show notes. Um, so, yeah, just thanks very much, mate. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much. Have a, have a, have a great day. Guys, thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. James, 
thank you for coming on. I really enjoyed that. Um, and like I've been saying these last couple of months, we are going to have more and more civilian guests coming on because, um, you know, someone like James, as we said, you know, he's, he's never served in the military. We've seen a lot of, uh, seen a hell of a lot of conflict and um, he's someone that we can learn from. Check out his books. Um, my Friend the Mercenary is a very well-known one. Archangel is the latest in his series of fiction. As I said, I read um, the uh, Breakline, really enjoyed that. So check, check him out, guys. Uh, everything is linked up in the show notes. I want to say thank you again to the Royal British Legion for making today's episode possible. Please check him out on social media. Please go and follow James on social media, uh, pick up a copy of his book, support the people that support the podcast. And um, I would ask to, like, I would... And I would like to ask of you guys a little fee. We have, um, you know, we we have great guests on the podcast, I like to think. I'm sure you guys think the same. That's why you're still here. So if you did enjoy today's podcast, please tell a friend about it. Uh, please make a post on social media. Uh, it takes a lot of time to make uh, to make the podcast happen. We have a lot of people coming in, giving up their time. And um, I don't think it's it, I don't think it's unfair that we ask in return. If you enjoy an episode, you leave a review, or you tell a friend, or you make a post. Take your five minutes, guys, and it will help spread the word. Why is that important? Well, because there are millions of veterans out there. And from the messages that we get in the DMs and in the emails, I know that the podcast has helped some people through some pretty dark times, right? So wouldn't it be nice if we could get the podcast to the ears of everybody who might benefit from that, either benefit by helping them grow the business or becoming fitter, happier, healthier, all of that stuff. So if you think we did a good job, please tell people about it. And if you don't think we did, then what the fuck are you still doing here, you cunts? All right, we'll catch you next time. Love you, bye. Yeah. Listen. Shout out teaser. You told me not to worry, and you wouldn't break my heart You told me you were sorry, yeah, my whole world fell apart You said it's not my fault, and yeah, I've never done you wrong I'm grinding to a halt, now I can see you're moving on I promised I'd get better, and I told you things would change You keep me to the gutter, yeah, I'll never be the same I've gotta let you go, now live your life and spread your wings And yeah, you put on quite a show, and pulled the puppet strings And are you sure that you don't want me? Remember all the pain? Or maybe you should thank me, it's your loss and my gain I'm leaving now forever, I won't hang my head in shame, but yeah, you've taken me for granted, and you should feel ashamed. You sold a dream to all of us, a dream that we'd all die for. A reason for us all to live and something we could fight for. I might just help a man up to his feet or hold a newborn, but no matter what I do, my hands remembering my rifle, yeah. Life's hard, I know that. Still wouldn't change shit. I wouldn't go back, yeah, I wouldn't go back. Feelings I hold back. Memories fade, yeah, they go fast, yeah, they go fast Good times to come and go, survive the highs and lows Just take it step by step, I guess, yeah, I suppose Good times to come and go, survive the highs and lows Just take it step by step, I guess, yeah, I suppose